It's great to be with you again this morning. Please open in your Bibles to uh, the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we're going to begin reading in the 27th verse, and we'll read through uh, chapter 2, verse 2. But a little background first, uh, Paul, you'll remember, uh, was the key figure in the launching of the church in Philippians. He, Acts 16, he went to Philippi and Lydia was there at a place that they thought people were praying and he preached the gospel. Lydia and her household were converted. They continue to preach the gospel. There's a bit of an uproar in the city after Paul cast a demon out of a young slave girl and... They end up getting thrown in jail, but he is singing with the brother that he traveled with, and the other people hear it, and then the Lord breaks them out of the jail. The Philippian jailer gets saved. He and his household are baptized, and that's how this church got started. Paul continues to have a concern for this church. He loves this church, and so... He writes them uh, a letter while he is in jail in Rome. So he's in, he's, he's in Rome, he's under house arrest, and he writes this letter. And there were some people who, some people who saw an opportunity with Paul being in jail to preach the gospel. Notice it says, in chapter 1, verse 17, that they, they were proclaiming Christ out of rivalry and not sincerely wanting to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. Paul's response was that in whatever way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He rejoiced that the gospel was being preached, even though men's motives were not pure. What a guy. Uh, and that'll have an impact on, uh, on some of the comments we make this morning. So let's read our text. He's writing to them. And uh, this sermon begins with verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me read that again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, he wasn't sure if he was going to be released from prison or not. He wasn't sure if he might be killed. He he talks just a few verses earlier that his desire is to part and be with Christ. That would be far better for me, but for your sake, I think the Lord is going to keep me around for a while. I hope to see you again. Uh, so he says that's that's what's behind that sentence. Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, Notice that it's been granted that we should believe. We believe salvation is entirely the work of God. It has been granted 
for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What's the conflict? Well, Paul was in jail when he was in Philippi. He was opposed. The gospel was opposed and he was thrown in jail. Now, the Lord sovereignly broke him out. But that's the conflict he's talking about. And then he says, so you saw the conflict that I had and and that I now still have. Well, he's in jail again. Now he's in Rome. He's in jail again. And he says, you're now engaged in the same conflict. You're meeting with opposition for your commitment to the gospel. He continues in chapter 2, verse 1. So... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being, by having, I'm sorry, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. I mean, that's a rather extensive description of unity. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Well, that's, that's where our, our reading ends. May, the God, may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Let me ask you to keep your Bibles open at least for a few more moments because I want to reference some things uh, there in Philippians 1. Uh, there's a memorable scene in the, in the third and final Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. Uh, Sauron's hordes of orcs and trolls and hideous monsters march out from the Black Gate, the entrance to Mordor, to engage Aragorn's army, which had approached Mordor, which is the the evil kingdom, as a diversionary tactic so that Frodo and Samwise could could get to Mount Doom undetected. Do you remember the story? So that the eye of Sauron wouldn't notice that those guys with the ring were making their way to Mount Doom. So the army is there. They knew they were up against impossible uh, odds. Tens of thousands of Sauron's forces hidden in the hills around the Black Gate came out, making it clear that they were surrounded and outnumbered more than ten to one. The army of the West was filled with fear when they realized this, and the men began looking for a way out. I mean, you can see they're like looking, is, we're surrounded. is there a way to get out of here? But Aragorn, the, the king on a horse, charges up to the battle line, and he lifts his voice. Hold your ground. Hold your ground. Sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends. And break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. 
And with fresh courage in their hearts and fresh resolve on their faces, the men of the West drew their swords in unison. They were ready to face whatever was coming. It's a soul-stirring moment at the climax of the story. That's a trilogy. You're at, you're at three movies, you know, and this is the pinnacle. It's a moment of climax when the armies of the rightful king in the face of overwhelming opposition, are exhorted to hold their ground, to not forsake their friends, to not forsake bonds of fellowship, to stand shoulder to shoulder for all they hold dear. And our king, through Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing something similar in our text today. This is an exhortation, not just from Paul to the Philippians, who he loved, but from the Lord to us. It's an exhortation for us to hold our ground, to not forsake our friends, to not forsake our bonds of fellowship. It's an exhortation to stand firm with one heart and one soul, striving shoulder to shoulder with one another, and with, with Christians everywhere for the faith of the gospel. The title of today's sermon is Christian Unity, and I'd like to discuss this urgent and timely theme under three headings. A first, the foundation of Christian unity. Second, the concern for Christian unity. And third, the way to Christian unity. So first, the foundation of Christian unity. What is the foundation or the basis upon which we are united? Well, the foundation of Christian unity is the gospel. Paul's passion, as we see in the verses preceding our text, I hope your Bibles are still open, was the gospel itself. Notice Philippians 1 verse 5. He speaks of Their partnership in what? Their partnership in what? Verse 5. The gospel. His work, chapter 1, verse 7, was defending and confirming what? The gospel. His aim in chapter 1, verse 12, was to advance what? The gospel. His imprisonment in chapter 1, verse 17, was for the defense of what? The gospel. And here in verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul wants the Philippians to strive together for the sake of the gospel. The foundation of Christian unity is the gospel. That was Paul's passion. And it is upon that gospel that we take our united stand. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Notice there are some things more important than other things. 
I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The foundation of our unity is a a common belief and a common commitment to the gospel. And the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the foundation of our unity. Because the gospel is of first importance, because it's the, the essential message of God's word, because there is no salvation apart from the gospel, we cannot enjoy Christian unity with those who deny the gospel. We can't enjoy Christian unity with those who deny the authority of scripture because it's, it's that Christ, that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. You cannot deny the authority of scripture and walk in Christian unity. We can't enjoy Christian unity with those for whom something else is of first importance. There can be no Christian unity without agreement upon the gospel. So that, that's, you know, what's the foundation of Christian unity? Well, there can be no Christian unity apart from agreement on the gospel. Now, we can and should cooperate with all men, whether they're Christians or not, in whatever is good. We can and should extend Christian love to all men and women, even to our enemies. Paul said to the Romans, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. With all men, with all people, Christian or not. But though we adopt a peaceable spirit towards all people, even our opponents, we can forge no enduring unity, no solidarity of heart and soul, no fundamental unity of mind and purpose with those who reject the gospel as it's taught in God's word. And furthermore, because Christian unity is grounded in the gospel, we cannot be unified with those who are in error concerning the gospel. In this very epistle, where Paul appeals so strongly for unity amongst the Philippian believers, he adopted anything but a unifying tone towards those who sought to introduce error into the churches. Error concerning the gospel. So you see in in Philippians 3 verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's speaking of the circumcision party. Like that's, hey Paul, that's not very nice. You're calling them some pretty harsh names. But, But he was not... He was not extending a unifying embrace to people who were in error concerning the gospel. Concerning anyone who dared to distort the gospel of Christ. Or anyone who preached a gospel contrary to the one that he preached. Or anyone who preached a different gospel. All those are are actual words taken from Galatians 1, 7 and 8. Paul did not adopt an ironic unity building tone. In Galatians, he called them accursed. He called them false brothers. 
And he says, Galatians 2, 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So clearly Paul warned against and would not extend a unifying embrace to anyone who didn't have the gospel right. But, but, Philippians 1, 15 through 18, which, which, I read at the outset, if anyone had the gospel right, if anyone had the gospel right, even if they didn't like Paul, even if they acted against Paul, even if they sought to afflict Paul, Paul rejoiced that the gospel was preached and he refused to break unity with those brothers. Why? Because they had the gospel right. He refused to break unity with them. He said, I rejoice that the gospel is preached. Now, he didn't ignore that they were doing what they were doing out of rivalry and conceit because he gets to that right after the text that we read in Philippians 1 or Philippians 2. He begins to talk about not doing anything out of rivalry or conceit. So he's not ignoring the problem, but he refuses to break fellowship and unity with those brothers. Well, second, that brings us to our second point. If the foundation of Christian unity is the gospel, uh, Paul nevertheless, Paul carried a concern for Christian unity. He had a deep concern for Christian unity, as we saw in the text that we read. Now, the Philippian church gave Paul great joy. I mean, this is probably the happiest epistle in, in the entire New Testament. This is just... In fact, the series that we're doing, we're just about finished going through Philippians, and I gave this sermon several weeks back, uh, Palm Sunday. Um, it, we're calling it, the, the name of the, the series is Gospel Happiness. Gospel Happiness. There is such a call to rejoice, to rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Paul's rejoicing over the Philippians. The Philippian church gave Paul great joy, but we observe in, in Philippians 2, 2 verse 1, that his joy is not yet complete. Paul rejoiced at their partnership in the gospel. He rejoiced at their love and concern for him. He said that they were his joy and his crown, but he did have one significant concern, which kept his joy from being complete. And commentators agree that verse 27 of chapter 1, where we began reading, marks a transition where Paul begins to address that concern. Paul was concerned enough for this church to have already sent Epaphroditus back to them, that's chapter 2, verse 25, so that Paul himself would be less anxious concerning them. So he was anxious about some of the things that were going on in the Philippian church. So he sent Epaphroditus back right away after he delivered their gift and he got well enough to travel home. He was concerned enough for this church to arrange for Timothy to get there soon. That's chapter 2, verse 19. And he planned to get there himself as soon as he was released from house arrest. So Paul's carrying a concern for the Philippian church. And I guess my burden this morning is that we would carry the same concern. Yeah. Paul's concern was for their solidarity, for their harmony, and for their unity. Now, I'm bringing this sermon here. I'm bringing it 
Not because I discern any lack of that in the, in the midst of Grace Community Church. Uh, I'm bringing it because it's the most recent sermon that I preached and it's most fresh with me. Um, so I'm, I don't want you to think that this is directed at you because of something discerned. It's not. But he was concerned for their solidarity, their harmony, and their unity in the face of seriously intimidating opposition from without and in the face of growing disunity within. So there's opposition from without and a growing disunity from within. And those things very often go together. Outside opposition is very often a catalyst for internal division. The enemy's design in marshalling opposition from without and stirring disunity from within, his strategic objection is to strike all manner of fear into the hearts of God's people and create disillusioning fissures and divisions in the church to get Christians to separate from one another in order to devour the vulnerable. And we've seen it. When there's divisions and there's church splits, there are always people who who the enemy seeks to devour in that moment of their vulnerability. He wants to devour the vulnerable. He wants to blunt the advance of the gospel because Christian unity is a tremendous threat to the domain of darkness. And Satan knows in the words of Jesus that a house divided against itself cannot stand. So he seeks to divide us. Paul's concern was that the Philippian church might not be divided, but that they would stand together holding their ground in the gospel with one spirit, one mind, and one soul. His concern was that they would follow his example and be full of faith and courage, that they wouldn't be frightened or spooked in any way by their opponents. In Lord of the Rings, we saw the same thing. When they realized the, the, the extent of the external opposition, they, the soldiers began looking for a way out of there. And there comes the call to unity, to not be afraid. Paul's concern was that they wouldn't forsake their friends. Or the bonds of fellowship. But, and, and Paul uses military language here, that they would strive side by side. I mean, the picture is, is of soldiers standing, standing side by side ready to fight. That they would strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're fighting for. And to do that even if it meant suffering. And Paul himself was suffering. Their suffering opposition was a sure sign of their salvation because because God grants everyone that he saves, first, that they should believe, and second, that they should suffer for his sake. And their opponent's willingness, in fact, their eagerness to inflict suffering on those who believe the gospel was a sure sign of their destruction. Their opposition to God confirms their destruction and their ultimate defeat. So Paul is concerned that the Philippian brothers and sisters remain together and unified, confident in God, even though suffering opposition. Paul expressed his concern for their unity then in chapter 2 in a very personal way. Now, now, 
Now, Paul loved the Philippians. And they loved him. And he knew that the Philippians wanted to encourage him and comfort him. They loved him. They wanted to participate with him in the broader mission. They, they wanted to show him affection and sympathy. So he says in the beginning of Philippians 2, Brothers and sisters, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, all those characterize his relationship with them. If there's any of that, then, then please complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Paul expressed the same concern for unity in virtually all of his epistles. 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. To the Ephesians, he said, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. So if Paul was concerned for unity of heart, unity of soul, unity of mind in the churches, then you and I should be concerned for Christian unity as well. Would you say that your Christian life reflects or shows a deep concern for Christian unity? Do our lives reflect a joyful solidarity with fellow Christians beginning in our local church and beyond our local church? Are we as concerned for the unity of believers as Paul was? Or we could say as Christ was. Paul was concerned because Christ was concerned as he made clear in his high priestly prayer. We should carry in our hearts a concern for Christian unity. Now, all of this raises a a big question. How do we get there? How do we achieve greater degrees, greater, greater measure of unity? How can... People who think differently be of the same mind. Like, how how do we achieve that? How do we make progress towards that? How can how can we be of one accord when we don't always see eye to eye on on everything? Well, I think I think Paul gives us a path towards. Christian unity, which is my third point, the way towards Christian unity. How do we stand side by side with Christians who may embrace the same gospel that we do, but with whom we have real disagreements, or who may even be actively sinning against us, as were those who were, who were doing things to, to afflict Paul? Like, how, 
How do we stand side by side with them? And I think Paul gives us the answer in the very first verse to this text. It's as if Paul was saying to the Philippians, look, I rejoice over you greatly, but there is one thing. Only, and that's what the word only means. I don't know if you've seen on YouTube, John Piper has these videos where he unpacks a verse and he's got, you know, he's got, he's drawing on his, on the thing. And he talks about this word only. It's like, it's like there's one thing. There's one thing of importance here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life, that's that's an unusual word. It seems to mean let your life as citizens, same word he uses when he speaks of them being citizens of heaven in chapter 3, only let your life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's speaking here about relational holiness in community with other Christians. Let your life together as fellow citizens be worthy of the gospel. And I'm suggesting to you that that's how we make progress towards a greater Christian unity. We live lives worthy of, consistent with the gospel. And he says to do this so that, which means in order that, it's a cause and effect statement, whether I see you again or not, I might hear that you're standing firm with one spirit and with one mind. So how do we make progress towards being of one spirit and one mind? How do we make progress towards a more perfect Christian unity? What produces and guards Christian unity in this church and in the wider body of Christ? The answer is living lives worthy of or interacting with each other in ways that are worthy of or relating together in ways worthy of the gospel. What produces and maintains Christian unity are hearts and minds, conduct and conversation, attitudes and affections shaped by how Christ relates to us in the gospel. Let your manner of life and relating to each other be consistent with the gospel. So, if in the gospel Christ humbled himself for us, if in the gospel he laid down his life for us and suffered for us and forgave us, then we, as undeserving recipients of those graces, must, if we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, extend those same undeserved uh, graces to each other in ways that are costly and sacrificial. If Christ related to us that way, then that's how we must relate to one another. When we do that, Christian unity is both preserved and advanced. (laughs) Unity grows and blossoms wherever Christians relate to each other 
in the ways that Christ related to us in the gospel. Wherever Christians relate to each other with the humility and the forgiveness and the kindness and the mercy and the forbearance and the patience and the grace and the gentleness and the love seen in the gospel, Christian unity breaks out. It begins to break out when we relate to one another that way. Unity grows. Priorities come into focus. Offenses are forgiven. Differences begin to diminish as we walk in love towards one another. And the flip side of that is true as well. When those virtues are forsaken, when they're forgotten, oh yeah, we're supposed to walk towards one another with humility and forgiveness and kindness and mercy and forbearance and patience and grace and gentleness and love. When those are forgotten or forsaken, dissension and disunity inevitably grow. And if left unchecked, they produce disillusioned believers. They produce a wave of people backsliding and apostatizing. And it results in real difficulty spreading the gospel. People can't say, look at how they love one another. So my point here is that we are unified not only as our beliefs are shaped by the gospel itself, not only as we labor together for the mission of the gospel, but as, but as our hearts towards each other and our words towards each other and our behaviors towards each other are shaped by the ethics and the virtues which spring from the gospel. The gospel applied to our lives produces the humility, the selfless love, the encouragement, the comfort, the joy, the reasonableness, the forbearance, the hospitality, the graces that build us up and keep us together. That's what the gospel produces in our hearts. So again, let me ask you a few questions. Is your life and the life of your family integrated into a gospel-centered community. That's the assumption here in Philippians. Is there a sense in which you are living as a citizen of the kingdom of God with other citizens and fleshing out what it means to be a grace community church? A local church. Is your life and the life of your family integrated into a setting where you enjoy a shared life with other Christians, where you enjoy meals together with them, where you labor alongside of them in a shared mission? That's one important question. And there are many Christians who've forgotten about that. And it doesn't make for greater Christian unity or greater impact in the world. Another question, are we being shaped by the virtues we see molded by Christ? His love for us, his care for us, his unswerving loyalty to us. 
Do those things shape the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Does your attitude towards that brother or that sister or that church or that leader that you struggle with, does your attitude towards those individuals reflect the grace of God that you've received in the gospel? Or do we refuse to extend to them from our hearts the same grace that we've received from God, the same patience? the same loyalty, the same hope. Well, I think that's what Paul is calling for when he says, let your manner of life as citizens of heaven together, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come or am kept from coming, I may hear that you're standing together with one mind, with one spirit, striving shoulder by shoulder, shoulder to shoulder for the sake of the gospel. So, to review, the foundation of Christian unity is the gospel. The concern for Christian unity should be carried by all of us. It should grieve us when we observe a lack of unity. It should, it should, it should concern us when we see people not living out the ethics of the gospel towards one another. And the way to Christian unity is to live lives worthy of the gospel. Let me invite the band to come back as I just share a final few thoughts. As I mentioned earlier, the title of the series we're in in Philippians at Covenant Fellowship is Gospel Happiness. Gospel happiness. And, I, and the point that I made when I preached this sermon there was that the more unified we are, the happier we will be. The more unified we are, the happier we will be. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is such a happy, wonderful thing when when we dwell together in unity. I've known that joy and that happiness my entire Christian life, my whole adult life. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I've been a member of Covenant Fellowship for nearly 40 years. I've been there as a pastor, and I've been there as a layman, and I've been there as a pastor again. And I'm still walking with the same brothers that I began to walk with when I was 23 years old and I'm now 71 Uh, my closest friend of all the brothers that I've walked in unity with is a brother named Alan Redrup Uh, he was my closest friend Uh, he was the co-founder of Covenant Fellowship he went home to be with the Lord uh, just before Palm Sunday and a day and a half before his passing Jim and I, Jim Donahue and I, you know Jim Donahue? Yes, he's been here. Jim Donahue and I spent nearly an hour with Alan. And though his voice was little more than a whisper, he was so weakened, we had, we had heard that he probably wouldn't even be conscious when we got there, that he was in his final hours. And uh, when we got there, he woke up quick. 
and started busting on Jim right away. Um, Though his voice was little more than a whisper, and we had to lean in close to his face to hear him, he said to me and to Jim through tears, One of the greatest joys of my life and of these final days has been the fellowship I've known with you men. He recalled, he said, he said I, I knew he was talking not just about me and Jim, but about the brotherhood. He said, he said, it was so wonderful when Mark and Jared came over. That's Mark Prater and Jared Torrance. He said, he said, we laughed and laughed. I talked to Linda. I said, tell me about the visit that Alan had with Mark and with Jared. She said, I was in the other room. They were laughing so loud. Alan's voice had gotten very weak, but when those brothers came over, he started to laugh loud. He was filled with joy as he remembered the deep and loyal friendship that we have had, the constant laughter, the sufferings that we endured together. He was filled with joy as he remembered it, as he remembered being on mission together with brothers, with one heart and one soul for the glory of Christ. That unity that he enjoyed with the brothers was one of the greatest blessings of his life, and he just had to tell us before he went home to be with the Lord. That unity, that loyalty enabled him to bear great fruit for Christ, and he was deeply grateful to the Lord for that blessing, which endured decade after decade to the end. And and, uh, it makes me grateful as well. May all of us, brothers and sisters, as we strive together, shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel through the course of our lives, with those God has given to us as friends, as brothers, as sisters, may may we finish our race, as Alan Redrup did, happily unified with and delighting in our brothers and sisters in Christ, Rejoicing together in the good news of our God's unfathomable mercy towards sinners like us. Hey, if we stay unified, the Lord is going to do above and beyond all that we asked or or thought. The second to last meeting I had with Alan, he, he looked at me and he said, he said, Bill, believe what God did through a couple of idiots like us and I said I can't believe it I can't believe it it's it's too wonderful to take in so may that be your experience as well walk in unity with one another strive together for the sake of the gospel and extend that same love to brothers and sisters beyond Grace Community Church, beyond sovereign grace, to our our brothers and sisters across the world. 
Thanks for hearing me this morning. Thank you.